You are listening to a Hillbilly Horror Stories classic episode. Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. Now welcome your host, Jenny Polly and his lovely wife, Tracy. I hear she's a lovely girl. <laughs> Hello fellow listeners, this is Alberto here in California, and you are listening to Hillbilly Horror Stories. Thank you, Alberto, for that awesome intro. And, of course, we used you because you're from California, and the story is from California. My name is Jerry. Welcome to Episode 34 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I am joined by my wife, Tracy. Hey, guys. What's up? And I think you guys are really going to enjoy this story because I think this is one that, unless you live in the area, you probably won't know. And those are kind of the stories that I really enjoy doing. Uh, before we get going, I want to talk about a, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, we did officially sign up and get our booth for a scare fest. So if you guys are going to be in the Lexington area at the end of September, beginning of October, you're more than welcome to come by and say hi. And uh, happy anniversary. Yep. That will be, <laughs> we, how romantic. We will be spending our 10th year anniversary at a scare fest convention. Dang. But that goes right along with the fact that we spent Valentine's Day going to see Bobby Mackey's and True. so that's what we do. That's how we roll. We're not normal. I want to give uh, a couple of shout-outs to some people. Uh, Gareth Williams in the UK. Thank you, Gareth. Sarah Dillon in South Carolina. Thank you, Miss Sarah. Missy Kabick in Florida. Thank you, Missy. Hayden Reddy, and he's in Australia. Good day, mate. How's <laughs> actually good? That's actually pretty good. Thanks. Victoria Reagan, she is uh, a nurse in the U.S. Army, stationed over in Germany. She's on uh, one year of a three-year tour. Thank you for your service, Victoria, and I know I'm sure they need all the nurses they can get. We appreciate your working so hard. Absolutely. And this was uh, given as a task for me. Daniel Sewell, another one of our listeners in Australia, and he's pretty much betting that I can't pronounce the city he's from, so I'm going to give it a shot. Wulongong. <laughs> Wulongong. Wulongong. That, that almost sounds dirty, and I, I'm ashamed that Daniel made me say it. So, <laughs> well, well, I love it. I love a Wulongong. But a couple, <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> a, a couple of, of quick uh, notes on this show. We're actually going to have an, an interview with Andrea Whitney. Trust me, this is unlike the interviews we've done in the past. You will. You will love this story because what Andrea does, she is the editor-in-chief of the Kirbyville Banner, which is a newspaper in Kirbyville, Texas. And she has the task of going out every October and finding these stories because apparently people in Texas, as we've already discussed, are horror uh, freaks. And I mean that in a good way because you guys seem to eat up everything uh, that has to do with the paranormal. And they her paper sells the most papers in October – 
because of the fact of they do all these stories. And she has a story that is absolutely fascinating to tell us uh, and very detailed oriented on this story. So I'm, I'm kind of excited. And when you hear the story, I think you'll enjoy it too. Well, good. We're looking forward to that. Now, with that being said, uh, we actually also just got through doing an interview uh, with an actress by the name of Chanel Ryan, Googler, C-H-A-N-E-L-R-Y-A-N. And this young lady has got some very cool paranormal stories, but she's also a very accomplished actress. She's been on Howard Stern. She's been on the Late Late Show with James Corden. She's done stuff with, you know, Kevin Pollack and Bill Murray and John Stamos and you name it. She's pretty much done it. Been in over 50 uh, movies and a lot of them are of the horror genre. And we get to do an interview with her. And the reason we talked to her is she's had some experiences in the Lizzie Borden house, and next week's episode is on Lizzie Borden. So it was a good little tie-in. So that's what's going on for the future of the show. Tonight's show, we're going to talk about Devil's Gates Dam. Um, if you haven't heard of it, it's in Pasadena, California. Those of you who are uh, outside of the United States, Pasadena is not too far from L.A. It's in L.A. County. And if you've heard of the Rose Bowl, and a lot of times some of the Super Bowls have actually been in Pasadena. So that's probably what, what it's more known for, for the Rose Bowl Parade. That's in Pasadena. The Devil's Gate Dam actually controls the water flow of the Arroyo Sacan uh, River Basin. And the European, early European settlers named it Devil's Gate because there's a huge rock formation there that looks a lot like the devil. Picture the horns, the long pointy chin and a nose. And I'll actually post a picture of this on our Facebook page so you can actually check it out and see kind of what it looks like. But even back in the day, back in the early 1800s, they felt like there was a, a really negative energy in this place. And even back to the, the Native Americans that lived there, they even felt like that it was a kind of a sacred ground. But we'll get into that a little more, uh, as we get into the show. But it's presumed to be one of the gates of hell. And we're going to get into a lot of different theories as to why people think that. But within the, within the range of Devil's Gate, Dating all the way back to the 1800s, there's been numerous accounts of, of people that have been mysteriously killed. People go missing and bodies just being found and not knowing what happened to them. Now, Bruce Cremins in 1960 was kind of the, the one that really brought this into prominent. He was a 16 year old, or I'm sorry, a six year old boy. And it was his first day of camp. He didn't want to go to camp, but he went. It's kind of like a Boy Scout type thing. And, you know, Bruce is, is kind of being led with the rest of the kids by the, you know, by the counselor like they did back in the day. And they went on a big walk. And as they're walking, Bruce said he didn't feel good. He goes to the counselor and he said, Hey, I, I just would rather go back to camp. Well, the counselor could look and see the camp from right where he was. Okay. It's going to say, was it very far away? Yeah. No, he could look and see it. And, yeah. and, and, you know, he didn't think anything of it. So he said, Yeah. Okay. There you go. It's a straight shot. And the problem was that they returned back to the camp not too long, 30, 40 minutes later after their walk, and he was nowhere to be found. Little Bruce was nowhere to be found, and here almost 100 years later, you know, they still, well, I said 100 years, I guess that was 1960, so it's only like 57 years. That's like, I know, I was looking at you like, what, wait. My my fair math, but... (laughs) 
you know, 57 years later, they've never found his body. They've never found anything that they thought was him. He just disappeared practically off of the face of the earth. Oh, my gosh. That is so weird. I mean, it's just strange things always happen with no explanation. You know, even the the river itself, the whole the Arroyo Seco, uh, it's a, it means dry river. That's Spanish basically for dry river. Uh-huh. But the contradiction is the Native Americans called it the land of flowing water and fruitful valley. So it really doesn't make sense that the Native Americans talk about it being flowing water and fruitful valley, but yet the name of it, the, the Hispanic name of it, basically says, you know, dry riverbed. Was and, it dry? It wasn't, well, well, was it dry or not? Part of the reason is people get used to like where we live, rivers flow nonstop. Yeah. And, but in the West, rivers sometimes will be dependent on how much rain you get. Yeah. So it's not uncommon for some of these rivers out West to, only have water in them eight or nine months out of the year. And the other three months, if there's been a drought, they, they're just practically like a, you know, dried up creek bed. Hmm. So that's, that could be part of it. Now, the dam is also kind of at Mother Nature's mercy because when there's no rain, it's dry. And when there's heavy rain, there's massive flooding. That's the problem with Pasadena. Just the, the conditions can change in an instant and, and you, then you get a massive force of water. And they were having all kinds of floods back in the early days, which is why they said, hey, we've got to build this dam here. And even the Haha Munga tribe said this was a forbidden zone. It's kind of a sacred area, forbidden zone. Mm-hmm. So it's just all the way around in this area, it's just kind of known as a creepy place. Yeah. And like I said, it's, it's even going back to the Native American days. They already kind of knew that. Well, this really kind of all picked up. And I would say ramped up in, in the 1930s, Jack Parsons, he was uh, infatuated with going to space. You know, he was just a young guy. He said, Hey, I, this is something I think he can do. So he self taught himself about rockets and he would build and launch rockets at Devil's Gate. Soon he, he found a bunch of people that were into the same kind of interest he was. So they had a group that they would go out there and, and just decide they were going to launch these rockets and, and make things. And <laughs> they actually would had these things blow up in their face sometimes and like the, literally literally these things would blow up right there as they're on them kind of like fireworks oh man and for that reason that the group of people like five or six of them they were known as the suicide squad so when people talk about the um the movie that came out suicide squad yeah. and the comic books and all that stuff this was the original term is that when that's where squad. it came from yeah this was back in the 1930s my gosh so after a few months of, of, you know, building these rockets and launching them, they actually had a major breakthrough in 1936. Now, back at that time, Jack Parsons was 22 years old, and he actually built the very first rocket motor. Oh, my gosh. I wish I had that brain that knew how to make stuff like that. That's just so intense. And, I mean, he just knew that, you know, hey, I want to be able to go to space. I think I can do this. And in order to do that, you're going to have to have some kind of self-propulsion, uh, self-propulsion. And so he just made it happen. Mm-hmm. And it didn't take long before the United States government caught wind of what he was doing. And the next thing you know, 1943, they're working for the military, all these guys, because the military saw that they could put these rockets on planes. They could put these rockets on missiles. You know, this was, this was now. A way they could use for war that they never really had before. Oh my gosh. So the problem was 
Jack also had another favorite thing that he liked to do. A la Aleister Crowley, he was a very big occultist. He looked at building rockets and he looked at magic the exact same way. He felt like they're both kind of leaving, leaving this earth to explore and, and go on to bigger and better things. And he felt like rockets could do that and he felt like magic could do that. So what he would do is he would go to Devil's Gate because he felt like there was a power there. Mm-hmm. And when he was there, he would just practice these different yeah. occult rituals. And some say that Jack actually created a portal to hell there, which is what caused a lot of these things, you know, with people missing and, and uh, kids uh, just disappearing. Now, like I said, he saw rockets and magic as being the same thing. And he would do these rituals, and pretty soon he started getting a big group of people that would join him and, and let him do these rituals. But what he noticed was when he did these rituals, there was a noticeable change in the environment. He actually thought that he could change the weather. Oh. So that's that's actually what his intentions was. And once the military found out that he was doing all these extracurricular activities as far as with the occult, uh, they pretty much put him out. I mean, that's a scary combination. Well, I mean, they just didn't want to have any part of it. Yeah, I don't blame them. But once he got kicked out of the military, he threw himself completely into um, the magic, but primarily into a certain, um, I guess we'll say, ritual called Babylon working. Now, the whole purpose of this Babylon working was to call forth what he called the goddess of Babylon, which was actually mentioned in the uh, uh, book of Revelations. And he wanted to bring it apart, and the purpose was to summon the demon. That was what he wanted to do. What is wrong with people? (laughs) So he said if this happened, she would actually come back and lead a whole new world of the occultist. So that's what he tried to do, and he had plenty of people out there helping him. So after months of trying this, he believed he actually succeeded. But before he could truly know, he died in a freak explosion. <laughs> yep. June 17th, 1952, his arm was blown off. Half of his face was blown off. He was 37 years old. I guess genius. that's not really funny. And but... no one knows what he was even working on. So when you combine his rituals with the, the big devil's face-looking rock and in the, the history of what the Native Americans felt about the place, it's no you know big secret or, or I guess a big reason why people would feel like that there was something sinister going on at this place. Why couldn't somebody just change the look of the rock? Uh, it's a very big rock. Oh. So it's like changing Mount Rushmore. Oh. <laughs> so after his Babylon ritual, strange things started to happen around the place. 1956, two kids disappeared while riding their bikes. A 13-year-old boy and 11-year-old girl, they just vanished. Never anything found from their body whatsoever. Like the... Bikes weren't found or anything? Nothing was found. No sign of them. So there's been a couple of different instances from people. Uh, James Darnell was from Detroit. He was visiting, and, and he decided to take a hike. Uh, took his girlfriend out there. It was a beautiful day. And they get to a point where there's, if you've, if you've seen any pictures of Devil's Gate, there's some there's actually some old rusty gates that are out there. Then it's like falling apart. Rusty are, gates? Yeah, oh, actual okay. gates. But they were out there, and it was daytime. 
And he happened to look over and the girlfriend, she just freaked out. She got really scared and she starts grabbing him by the arm because he turned around and she was like, she saw a little girl over there by the gate. And he, he turned around and he's like, I don't see it. I don't see a little girl at all. And uh, she, you know, got kind of ticked at him because he didn't believe her. Mm-hmm. They went back home. And that night he took a friend and decided he was going to go back out there. Mm-hmm. So he goes back out there and, you know, his friend's like, I don't see anything. And then all of a sudden, James does see something. And it's the same little girl. He said she had eyes like saucer, just black, just like saucers, but black. Oh, wow. And he was looking at her and, and uh, he got home. And he was the first, you know, apologizing to his girlfriend because he's yeah. like, I didn't believe you, but now I've seen it. And that's the freakiest thing I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. So he does a little research and he finds out that this girl that they both saw matches the description of the little girl that went missing Get back, in the, back in the 50s. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's several children went missing in this area. Ugh. So, I mean, you got all these different pieces. You've got the rock. You've got major droughts in that area, major floods in that area. You got the whole Parsons thing. You got missing mm-hmm. kids. So the, the question is, it seems like a very dark and evil place. Are people led there and then things happen to them? Or because it's a dark and evil place, does that have bad people hang out there and just make these things happen? I mean, does it seem, seems like it has a fascination with kids. Well, you got the kids and you got the other stuff that happened too. Oh, yeah. But, uh, there's, you know, like there's been a major drought since 2009. And, uh, there was a big fire in 2009. Um, it caused a lot of problems there. And I mean, and when you start having the weather that starts playing havoc, I mean, that, that town has huge fires. Mm-hmm. They have huge rainfall. When it rains, it rains. And, and, and because of the drought, the ground is so dry. That it absorbs it, ab- all that. it does well, it doesn't absorb it. It just two inches of rain can cause major flooding because it can't, oh. can't sink into the ground. Oh, I gotcha. And the problem, like they've had so many floods in the past, that there's a buildup of like you know, debris and, yeah. and mud, and and, so, and this stuff is almost like concrete because mm-hmm. it's so hard. So they're actually working to dig a lot of that stuff out because they're afraid that it's it's raised the level so now if there's a big flood to come through there it's going to splash over top of the dam because yeah all this debris down there now is going to make it you know a little bit taller and right and, the, and it's going to flow overflow so they're working on that situation but uh, another little story we had was uh, adam nobler he went out at night alone he just was fascinated by the paranormal fascinated by the story of of um devil's gate so he decided he was going to go out there alone and he said as soon as he walked out there he just felt the negativity he said he just felt sick he just felt nauseous and a few minutes into it he felt a real burning kind of stinging uh feeling on his right thigh and then when he looked down there was three big scratches that just came out of nowhere and he says that he's you know, just straight up convinced that that's got to be some type of a yeah. demon. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, that's no other way to explain it. I mean, you just don't have big scratches. This is why I don't like to walk in the woods or well, anywhere at night. <laughs> this is so scary and creepy to me. Well, you know, the the uh, the problem obviously out there is there's they've got fears that there's been damage to the dam because of uh. I don't know. <laughs> My voice cut out. I don't like I don't that. <laughs> I don't like it when I curse. To the damn. <laughs> but 
there's been damage to the dam because of the drought, because of so much dry weather, it's affected yeah. the ground. And like I said, they're expecting huge fires out there at any time, like the one in 2009. And then they just think that, you know, if there's a flood in Pasadena, there are so many houses down there that that dam protects. Oh, that, man. I mean, they could lose literally hundreds of houses and, and no telling how many people could die if, if as quick as these floods come up. My gosh. So that's the major concern. Yeah, so you would think they'd be working on solving that problem. I mean, I guess they are, but. They, oh, yeah. Like I said, they've got bulldozers and stuff down there digging this stuff out. And if you actually see any footage of it, I mean, it's amazing that when I say they're digging it out, I mean, it's almost like 20 feet worth of of concrete that they're trying to dig out. Oh and it's gosh. just basically all this old trees yeah. and stuff that got brushed down there yeah, and yeah. dirt and mud that's that's just become rock hard over these years mm-hmm. because of the drought. Mm-mm-mm. But that's our story on Devil's Gate. Uh, now, what we're going to do is, uh, once again, we're going to thank you guys for listening. We went over 80,000 uh, listens for the amazing <laughs> for this earlier this week. So we're extremely happy about that. We're on our way to 100,000. Thank you guys for God, telling your friends. That's so insane. We got a bunch of new reviews, iTunes reviews. I can't stress enough to you. That if you cannot um, donate money to the show, we're completely fine for that. If you can't buy a T-shirt, that's fine. But the one thing that most of you can do is leave us a review. That helps us and helps us get listeners. It moves us up the iTunes ranks. And all you got to do, if you got an iPhone, it's easy. You just click on a picture of the show and and click review and give us a quick review. And if you have Android, you can go to a computer and still sign up for an iTunes account for free and leave us a ranking that way. And I promise I'm not rapping no more. At least not this week. Oh, gosh. I'm sure we'll have some Eminem or some Young Jeezy or something going mm. on. You better let me break it out, like like go all in on it. Yeah, that's what everybody's looking for. Um do want to do mention again that we, we have sent out a ton of T-shirts this past week. So now we've got a couple of T-shirts in the U.K. We got a, one in Sweden. We sent out some to California, some to Texas, uh, one to Nashville, you guys are awesome. We thank you for, for buying these. And if you bought one, please send us a picture so we can send it on our Facebook page. Yeah. Everybody we'll likes to see what you guys look like, too. Yeah. I always tweet these things out and put them on, uh, on that. So if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's, um, at the rent daddy or at hillbilly horror. And then, uh, like I said, we've got our Facebook page. We like it when you guys join on Facebook because we can interact with you. We also have the website. That way you can buy t-shirts and you can donate to the show if you uh, feel like we're worth a couple of bucks. And that's www.hillbillyhorrorstories.com. And that's pretty much all the, um, I guess, begging and stuff we're going to do tonight. So it's not really begging, but <laughs> no. we're hoping that you guys are digging the new sound. We are using the two microphone system and everything now and then got our mixers. And that's thanks to you guys. So we appreciate that. Um, next thing we've got is Andrea Whitney. I told you about her a little bit earlier and she's got this cool ass story that happens in, in Kirbyville, Texas. Who'd have thought that a little place that most people have never heard of will end up with having such a cool story out of it. So we're going to take a quick little second here and we'll get Andrea up for you. All right. Welcome back to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And we have a special guest. I've been telling you people uh, for a while that there was a, a journalist from Texas that reached out to us, talked about doing a story on us. And during the midst of us having a conversation, I happened to um, come upon the fact that she's actually gone out and done a bunch of stories around Halloween time that, that the town that she's in is are like big horror freaks when it comes to Halloween. And that's what really sells papers. And uh, she told me some of these stories and I thought, man, I got to get her on the 
show so she can tell us some of these stories. So I've got on the phone with me, Miss Andrea Whitney. How are you doing, Andrea? I'm good. How are you, Gary? Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's no problem. I'm, I'm glad to have you on, like I said, after hearing some of these stories. And uh, I know you were going to send me three or four stories so we could kind of maybe discuss a bunch of them. But the first story you sent me just kind of knocked my socks off, so to speak. And um, it was so good. That one, that I, yeah, I just figured, let's just do that one. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about um, you work for the for the Kirbyville Banner in Texas, correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, it's a very small town. Uh, we're right on the border of Texas and Louisiana. We're close to Sam Rayburn, close to Jasper, Texas. Um, we're just a very small, small, very rural community um, in deep east Texas, Piney Woods. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Tell me what tell me what gets your town so excited about Halloween time, and, and why do you think there's such a fascination with like these ghost stories and paranormal stories? Honestly, I've always had a fascination with it since I was a little girl and I actually used to work for a larger paper and I started it there in Beaumont and it took off um, not to the degree it's taken off since and then when I took over the paper in Kirbyville I thought well you know I had kind of a decision to make of whether or not to do it or not because we are for lack of better words you know in a very religious community um, but I started doing it four years ago in Kirbyville and there were so many people from the mayor to the police police chief to the sheriff that came out with just tons and tons and tons of stories and it just it started like wildfire and I think a lot of it is because this part of of where we live is so incredibly old and there is so much history here and a lot of the history has been preserved through you know different volunteer organizations and such so there's always something to dig back on there's always something to go look at and um, there was believe it or not for as tiny of a town as this is it has a pretty sordid history so there was a lot of really interesting things to dig into and I think that once the stories just kind of started flowing and people started reading them it kind of got their minds going to hey I remember that place hey I remember growing up there I remember what happened there and so I just kind of played on all of that and it's just kind of taken a life of its own well, let me ask you this so there's obviously a bunch of stories that you've covered over the last four years you said October's full of these stories but you've got yes sir You've got a house in your area that you wrote a story yes. on. Tell me a little bit about the background of that house, why you chose to do a story on, on that particular house. Okay, um, this house is actually directly behind my office, so I would see it constantly. There's a railroad, you know, a railroad track behind the office, and then in the distance, you see this beautiful Victorian house. And for years, it was for sale, for years. And I always admired it, always thought it was beautiful. It, at one point, was a funeral home. But aside from that, it's just, it's a beautiful home. And I went to our local police chief just to kind of find out a little bit about it, of, you know, why is, you know, why is nobody looking into this home? You know, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. And that is, he kind of told me a little bit about the history of the house. And from then, I was hooked. <laughs> so... Um, it definitely has quite the story and it, I will admit that it's a story that I didn't believe at first myself until I had documentation to prove it. And then from there, it just takes every wicked and crazy turn that you could imagine that could happen in a story happened to me while we were doing this story. 
so. Well, don't keep the listeners in suspense. Tell us about the story. Tell us about exactly what you found so fascinating about it and, and just the, the things that you uncovered as you did your research. Okay. Now we just start from the beginning. Like I said, the house caught my eye. So I went to our police chief and he said, you know, he said, there's something about that house. He said, I just don't like it. Um, he said, I'm not going to say the word evil, but I just don't like it. And this is a hardened, seasoned officer of the law. The very first thing that kind of caught my eye was he said that there was a very large cello that used to sit in the front room. And they would patrol, especially around Halloween, especially at night, because teenagers and vandalism. And this cello was huge. And the the home, even though it was vacant, had a um, it had an alarm system. Well, he passed by and he would always admire this huge cello. And he passed by, everything was good, turned around like he always did, came back maybe five minutes later, and it was gone. (laughs) And so the alarm system never went off, and so that was kind of strange. Well, and then he also told me that it was a funeral home. So from there, I went from the police chief to a local funeral director who has been in this area for generations and verified that it, in fact, was a funeral home. So that's where I started digging. Um, and the home back in the late 1800s, early 1900s was inhabited by a woman. Um, she had two children, a son and a daughter. Her husband had died at an early age. She was left to raise these children in this beautiful home. Um, she never worked. She was considered a little different. She was an artist. She, that's how she's you know, spent her spare time with raising her kids, and she would paint. The objects of most of her paintings were normally Native American women, you know, a lot of them in the rituals that they did. So that led a lot of our small-town community, you know, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, to believe that she was not so much a witch, but she was just, nobody really messed with her. The two, her two children, neither ever married. They both lived with their mother and took care of her. One day, the daughter woke up, and she just felt like something was wrong. And I believe she was 26, her brother was 28 when this happened. They walked upstairs, and their mother, who had gotten dressed in her Sunday best, and shoes, stockings, everything, had late, you know, made her bed like she always did and laid down on her bed and she died. She died right there in the house, right there in the home that she loved so much. And it was almost as if she knew that she was going to die because she had makeup on, hair fixed. I mean, everything. I see at least it saved some work for the funeral director. (laughs) Exactly. I'm sure he appreciated that. So then the daughter goes downstairs. She gets her brother. They go back upstairs. They say goodbye. To their mother, you know, they loved her more than anything. But the daughter clasped in the mother's hands was a book. And it was a book that neither the son nor the daughter had ever seen before. And on top of that book, underneath her hands was a letter. And through a ton and ton of digging and begging and pleading, I actually was able to come up with the actual, it's a copy of the letter. And I really, I really can't paraphrase something like that and if it's okay jerry i'd rather just read it to the listeners no i think that's perfect um, if if that's okay just because like i said i i can't it's not something that i can that i can paraphrase okay the following is an excerpt from the letter that Susie, that's Freddie's name who left for her children my dearest children 
I'm no more for this earth. Time has not been kind to me, and I have decided that I must go on to the next life without you. I've loved you since the day I birthed you and will continue to do so until I see you again in the next world. But I must warn you, you are not alone in this house. For years I've kept a secret from you, unable to tell you because I did not want to frighten either of you. But now, as I feel my time is slipping away, I feel it is time to let the both of you know what I have known and protected for so many, many years. The house that is now your home is also the home to many. Many souls have passed through these doors, some of the living and some of the dead. Clasped in my hands, you will find a book of souls. Each one that you see still remains today. Each photo tells a story, and I have done my very best to tell you what you need to know. Behind each photo will be a piece of parchment with my writings of what I have learned about the person in the photograph. You see, my dear children, you are living in what used to be a funeral parlor. Many years before we came here, a young gentleman by the name of Maynard Thomas came across the property and built his home. The home housed living quarters on the top floor in a funeral parlor below. It is in our living parlor that many said their final goodbyes to loved ones as they passed on into the next life. However, many souls have stayed behind and remained to this day. It is then that you hear making the footsteps at night when we have all retired. It is then that you see when you think when you think you see something out of the corner of your eye. And it is them that make the shadows on the staircase as they come and go while you sleep. Be not afraid of those you hear but cannot see. They are simply souls just like you and I. Just like we are and we shall one day be, many are lost and confused. I have held them dear to me just like I have you and am now passing the responsibility on to the both of you. I have for you but one warning. Do not call the spirits out. I've spent many years keeping them within the walls of this house, and once they are summoned, I have no way of telling you how to send them away. Love, Mama. Wow, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's enough when you just find your mother dead and then you pull that out. That's enough to just really kind of just set you aback, I'm sure. It, I'm sure that it did. And like I said, if there's one thing that I do want to reiterate to your readers is I know how unbelievable this story sounds. But it it only gets, it, it you know, it's one of those stories that's so strange it has to be true. <laughs> I mean, there's just no other way around it. They found the book. Um after, you know, they, they laid their mother to rest, she is buried in a local cemetery. They, you know, continued to live in the home. Neither one married. They both passed in the home, just like their mother did. They put the book away. For years, no one knew where the book was. So now we're going to fast forward many, many, many years. The house would stay vacant for long periods of time. It passed on to family members. It sold to other people. No one ever stayed there very long. I have countless stories of over the past, you know, years where someone would move in and they wouldn't stay very long. Well, a couple that I came to know actually had decided to buy the home. Now, we're in, recently, they had decided to buy the home and they were going to make it their retirement. They had two, two little girls. They worked on it every weekend. They then eventually then um, lived there for many, many years, had a lot of experiences themselves, starting with there was one evening, we'll, we'll call her, we'll call them Jim and Anna. Anna didn't feel like she felt something was wrong. She, it was a thunderstorm, you know, a thunderstorm that night. They didn't have electricity. 
she thought maybe she was just a little bit nervous. She went to go up the staircase. There's a beautiful spiral staircase. She went to go up the staircase, and there at the foot of the stairs was just a glowing blue light. It didn't have a shape. It wasn't a mist. She just described it as a glowing blue light. And it bounced down the stairs, and it went away. Well, she bounded up the stairs to check on her girls. Her girls were fast asleep. She chalked it up to, I'm stressed out. My husband's off at work. I just, I, I, I need sleep. <laughs> the next morning, the girls come down for breakfast. She had already forgotten about it, you know, just getting everything ready for that day. And her little girl, her youngest, who was about four, looked at her and said, Mama, who was the blue lady in our room last night? And she said when her daughter said that, she froze because she knew what she had seen wasn't just in her head. Well, she still, you know, decided, okay, maybe it's something, maybe it's not. Like so many of us do, we think it's something, but... You know, your sense of reason just, just pushes it out of your mind. Her husband came home a couple weekends later. They were really getting into the remodel of the house, and they decided to take out the pantry wall. Well, lo and behold, as they take out the pantry wall, they find the book, this book of soul. Anna said from the beginning she didn't like it. She it, it was a piece of history, and she knew that it needed to be somewhere where it could be respected, but she didn't want it in their home not with her two little girls, and she said she just, she said it wasn't evil, but it just didn't need to be there in their home. So she put it up on a top bookshelf in their library where the little ones couldn't get to it. She walked back in the kitchen, and it was on her kitchen table. And she paused for a second, but she kind of chalked it up to, okay, you know, whatever. She put it back on the, the high bookshelf in the library, and it stayed there overnight. And the next morning, it was laying on the kitchen table wide open. So she then took the book and, you know, just put it. She didn't tell me where she had put it that third time, but it was not long after that that this family decided that they could no longer stay there. They woke up in the middle of the night to a horrendous knocking. And I don't know what it is about ghosts or spirits, but I read so many and hear so many times about them knocking. And she said the knock sounded like it, they were coming from everywhere. You know, it was like with just, just a banging, just a fierce knocking. She runs downstairs, and she can see the shadow of two men. One was tall and slender, wearing a hat. One was short and stocky. She went to the door to open it, and there was no one there. Is it possible that she saw the spirits of Abbott and Costello? Yeah, it could be. But wouldn't they make her laugh instead of make her cry because she was scared? Possibly. I mean, I would think. Go ahead. I don't know. Who knows? (laughs) So she goes back in. The knocking persists for a little bit longer. They all sleep downstairs like so many of us have done when we've gotten scared for whatever reason. The next morning, she wakes up in every drawer, every door, every cabinet, everything was open. I mean, she said it was just, I mean, this is a huge house. It's huge. And everything that could be opened was opened. Well, her husband and her made the decision that it was just, it was it was too hard. They couldn't do it. Nobody was sleeping. The girls were scared. So they decided to to leave. And they decided not to sell the house. And her exact words to me were, 
we won't ever put a family through what we went through in that house. And so that tells me that there's a lot she may not be telling. And unfortunately, she'll never be able to tell me. But the family moved. They moved to an area um, at Fort Nature's Grove. It's in the Golden Triangle. The, ne- they never had any experiences. She would not tell me where the book is. I have a good idea that it's with our trusty funeral director, but he has not let me know that yet for sure, but I'm getting there. <laughs> but I think if there's if there's anything that makes this story, and it's very sad, but it really hits home, and that's the fact that this interview took place, and within 24 hours of this interview with Jim and Anna, they were both dead. Wow. What uh, Do you have any details? Is that something you can share? I can. Um, I actually got, got the report from the police chief there in Port Natchez. These were two very respected, very well-known business owners. She had a catering and bridal company. He was an attorney. He killed the dog and killed her and turn the gun on himself within 24 hours of our interview. Did they have any kind of history of, of, of abuse or anything? Is this, was this a first time offense? Gary, I have dug and dug. There was no history. I've talked to their daughters. There was no, there was no illness. There was no, you know, no cancer, no, no history of abuse, no substance abuse, no drugs, no alcohol. These two people were as normal as normal could be. And I don't know, I can't, that's the one thing as a journalist, you really try to find ends to things. You try to put caps on things to close them. And I cannot close this one because I can't figure out why. The daughters did request autopsies on both Jim and Anna. Both were perfectly healthy. Not 10 minutes before it happened, their neighbor saw them outside. They were holding hands. They were walking the dog. He said that they walked back inside their house. They closed the door. And he said within about two to three minutes, he heard the gunshot. I I don't know. Something happened. You know, did it, does it revert back to them talking about what happened in the house? If that's the case, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll take that to my grave with guilt, but, um, I, I can't, I don't know why it happened, but I do know that she told me we will never sell that house because we will never put a family through what we went through. It's an incredibly tragic end to, to, it sounds like a tragic story all along. For somebody who was looking it, to, it really to retire, is. you know, that, that was going to be their retirement home and it turned into a nightmare. It, it did. And, you know, you hear about this stuff and, you know, and to me, I mean, this, all these horror movies that are out there, they don't have anything on real life. If, and if you really dig and you look, you're going to find things you can't, you know, some people say you can find an answer to everything. Well, I've spent in my every waking minute trying, it's almost become this obsession, trying to figure out why. And I, I can't, I can't answer it. You know, and luckily for me, I had, you know, I have some connections who could actually get me police reports, who could get me documents that, but nothing gave me the answers that I needed. Nothing. Now, the two daughters, they did sell the home. 
and the home is currently occupied. And the couple who are living there now have two young children, and they're they're beautiful, sweet people. And they have said that they hear laughing. They every now and then they'll see shadows, but nothing that would run them off. But they've only been there a year, you know. And so, do you know? It begs the question: Should they be there? You know, should is the same thing going to happen? I hope not. You know, is the can a home be evil? Can it hold bad memories? Can it influence you? Can it oppress you? Those are questions that I'm still looking for the answers to. Wow, that's an incredible story. And, I, and I'm so glad that you came on and shared it with the listeners. I'm sure they absolutely loved it. And I'm hoping well, that we I'm can so get you sorry on. sorry that it took so long. No, that's, that's okay. <laughs> I'm hoping we can get you on in the future to talk about some of these other stories. Because if there are anything like this story, I'm sure we want to hear those as well. Well, I appreciate it. It means the world to me that you guys had me on. I'm so honored. I I love the podcast. I've gotten all of my friends that are in the media to kind of jump on board. So, you know, down here in Texas, we're all, you know, you've got a big group of journalists that are pulling for you. So, (laughs) We greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. And until we uh, talk to you again, be safe out there and uh, get us some more stories. Thank you, Jerry. I appreciate it so much. And how about that for a cool story? And we're going to get Andrea back on the show sometime future because she's got tons of these stories. Like I said, she goes out and researches all of them and she was going to send me a lot of them. And the first thing that I saw was this one. And I said, this is good enough to use for just all by itself. I didn't really want to group anything else with it. So yeah, thank you so much for doing that for us. A couple of quick things I wanted to share with you. Um, we like to put on our Facebook page, the hillbilly horror stories twisted thought. And this is just something that it just comes across as extremely weird. And I wanted to read one of these to you. It says, Roman Emperor Nero kicked his pregnant wife to death, then felt so bad about it that he found a young boy who bore an uncanny resemblance to her, had him castrated, and then married him. He even called the boy by his dead wife's name. What a sicko. (laughs) What the hell's wrong with him? How messed up is that? That's pretty messed up. Ignorant. But there was, uh, you know, like I said, that's just one of the things we do. So if you go on the page, we always have some stuff like that. Um, Lizzie Borden next week, we're going to talk about obviously the crime itself, what happened. A lot of people know the story, but they don't know the details of the story. And I thought that would be kind of cool to do that. Most people know that Lizzie Borden supposedly killed her parents with an axe. And that's as far as most of it goes. Do you know anything about Lizzie Borden? No. She messed up in the head. She made a big mess. Well, probably. And there's a sick song about it. (laughs) Other than that, she's got issues. But, you know, we're going to get into some major details on on what happened, what happened at the trial. And then, like I said, we're going to have Chanel Ryan on, the actress, to uh, talk a little bit about her and some of the movies she's been in. But then she's going to talk about the experiences she had at the Lizzie Borden house with uh, one of her paranormal investigator friends. So it's going to be really cool. We're going to wrap this show up, guys. We uh, have a lot of cool things coming up for you. I've, we're personally working on some stories that we think will blow you away. We, we like trying to get bigger and better every single week, and that's what we're going to do for you guys. Uh, next week was a big step. Obviously, having uh, an actress the caliber of Chanel on uh, is huge for us, and hopefully that's just the start of getting a lot of bigger and better guests for you guys. Yeah, amazing. So thank you guys so much, and we will see you next week. Bye, guys.